Hello, my name is David James Young. You might know me as one of the four voices you're about to hear for the next hour or so on Hottest 100s and Thousands. But today, I'm coming to you as a friend. We're friends, right? It doesn't matter if you've been listening for a couple of episodes or a couple of seasons. If you are engaging with Hottest 100s and Thousands, then you have a friend in me. That's why I'm coming to you as a friend to ask, do you dig this? Do you like what we're doing? Because if so, there is one very, very simple way that you can help us out. And that is by telling people about what we're doing over here. We love doing this show and we would absolutely love it if you could share that with anyone you think even might be remotely interested. Tag us on your socials. Mention us in any conversation where podcasts come up. It would be so, so massively appreciated. Thank you again so much for your ongoing support. As I always say, we love you and we appreciate you. And now it's time for another episode of The Great Podcast. Are we rocking and rolling? I'm good to go. No, no rock and roll. Come on. It's not the 50s. It's not the 50s. I mean, you could say, are we hipping and hopping? I think that's a little (laughs) bit more current. Yeah, but for this episode... I think this is a rock and a rolling episode. This is a pretty all over the fucking place episode. Well, listeners, what genre do you think this episode is? Let us know in the comments and don't forget to absolutely (laughs) obliterate that subscribe button. I'm not kidding. I do not want to see a single skerrick of that subscribe (laughs) button left. Destroy it like you hate it. (laughs) I want you to hunt down everyone who ever knew or loved that subscribe button and obliterate them as well. Remember remember to end the subscribe button's bloodline. The subscribe button is the Red Palace and you are the Bolsheviks. (laughs) That's right. Get Bolshe on that subscribe button, fam. If I got that reference, I would find it really, really funny. I mean, I barely did, but I just wanted to say get (laughs) Bolshe. Talk to Jesus Christ as if he knows the reason why he did it all for you. We are Hottest 100s and Thousands, and we have taken control of your radio station. This is the podcast in which we talk about the songs that have been deemed hot enough to be in the Triple J Hottest 100. My name is David James Young. I'm one of the four voices you're going to be hearing for the next hour or so. Joining me once again, Nathan Harrison. Hi. Andrew McDonald. Hey, hey. And Adam Buncher. Jeez, man. I feel like you, you picked the heavy quote. Like, usually <laughs> usually the quotes come in at the beginning and they're a lot lighter than that. I'm just like, oh. Do you reckon you could have a chat with Jesus or would he be, like, too preachy in that? Uh, I don't know, man. I think it's, he had a bit of an open door policy. Uh. You know, he was a bit barefoot as legal. I think he'd be down to, <laughs> <laughs> to rap. He certainly wasn't rocking like Jordan High Tops. Yeah, true. No, please no. He, like, <laughs> don't make that fan art. Don't anyone do it. I'm getting in now. I don't want to see it. Put it away. You're at the party. It's just like, hey, man, have you seen Jesus? It's just like, I haven't seen him, but I'm sure you'll be able to hear him. And just up at the other end of the room, you just hear. Hey, it was, hey we learned many seasons ago that Jesus was way cool. Okay. True. Yes. It's true. This is very true. All right, we are down to the 
35 songs. We are so, so close. We've been through a lot this season, folks. And uh, boy, oh boy, we still have so much more to go. So much more suffering. (laughs) Well, not so much that. It's just, it's fascinating thinking we've already talked about some massive songs, some of the biggest songs of what would end up being the entire decade. And even still, we are about to talk about even bigger hits to come. It goes to show that there was there was a lot of shit going on in, in the year 2000. And uh, I think this selection of five songs is one of the more interesting time capsules, I think, that we've stumbled across. At number 35, it's the return of Gomez. They're back in Pog form. <laughs> this is We Haven't Turned Around. We came. Damn the tide and point the blame Came back for more, came back to see what you had in store Everyone join along, Gomez making a very, very quick return uh, at number 35 in the 2000 Hottest 100. That's a song we haven't turned around. It comes from the album Liquid Skin and previously on Hottest 100s and Thousands. Literally about three songs ago, we talked about Gomez with the song Machismo. And Andrew, we are now here to talk about another track from this cult following honorary Australian English rock act. Yeah. This is not the song I expected to get higher than Machismo. I hadn't heard Machismo either, though. Like, I didn't know either of these songs because the Machismo track was the title track from the EP that came out in 2000. But this came out earlier than Machismo in 99. So maybe the Machismo EP was like a bit of a different sound thing because this does not sound like the same band who made Machismo. Yeah, I can see the thread, but like if I didn't know that it was Gomez, I don't know whether I necessarily would connect the dots. I definitely wouldn't have. This to me feels like it's like their attempt at like a Verve song. Oh yeah, I can kind of see that. I definitely get the 90s indie thing coming through. Orchestral backing for an acoustic rock song. This is a fine song. I don't think this is particularly... Brilliant. I certainly don't think it's particularly bad or bad at all, really. But I, I do think that if I was of a certain age and like really fucked with the Verbs Bittersweet Symphony kind of shit, this might have been a song I really loved. I can see an alternate timeline. Like, as much as the, to me, I'm like, this is a eh song, I can absolutely see why it's rated. It has the trappings of like a popular alternative rock song. But at the same time, there is so much about it that makes it stand out from a typical Hottest 100 song, it, at least on paper, right? Like yeah. it's long, it's mostly acoustic. The hooks are there, but even then they're kind of subtle. And like I would describe the primary mood of the whole song as kind of like thoughtful, if anything. Yeah, yeah. It's like definitively not a banger. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of like the, the qualitative assessments that you have for bangers, it fails on every single one of those. Were any acoustic instruments used? If so, it is not a banger. So, like, I kind of love that it is included simply because of its outlying qualities, especially at number 35. I kind of got, like, a almost, like, post-grunge post, post grunge vibe from it. That's mm. a good call. Like, there's touches of, like, bush 
and Pearl Jam, even like Soundgarden, like Black Hole Sun. I think there's a link to that kind of song to this, particularly in the chorus where, you know, they are reaching for something quite big. Yeah. They are shooting high. I always think that's commendable. I think there's a real warmth to the production as well. Like I think the guitar sounds so rich and there's such depth to it. I think I quite like the song. Yeah, I don't (laughs) mind it. After Gomez being in last week, and you know, like in in a sitcom or something where there's like a one-off character and you're like, I didn't much care for that. And then they're in the next episode as well. And you're like, oh, yeah, (laughs) are they a recurring character now? And that's how I feel about Gomez. (laughs) Gomez are nothing if not a returning character for Australian music. Like we haven't turned around. It's nice of them to write a song about their Australian tour schedule. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, are they in the opening credits now as like guest starring Gomez, I guess? Starts with guest starring. Then they just get thrown into the middle of the rotation. Oh boy, that's rough. And and before you know it, Bart is just one of the Simpsons. I caramba. <laughs> this was a soundtrack. Ah, uh, it was a soundtrack. Yeah, what have you got? Uh, American Beauty. Yes, and also the TV show Roswell. Mm. Roswell. I never watched that. Yeah, right. Huh. Or if I did, the government wiped my memory. We Haven't Turned Around was written from the point of view of the aliens when they crash landed at Roswell. (laughs) Yeah, because they hadn't turned around. They tried to turn around, but they crashed. They tried to turn around and they couldn't turn around. They turned around 360 degrees and kept walking. Yeah. (laughs) Into someone's house where they became a member of the cast. (laughs) Where they became American Beauty. (laughs) Oh my God, I've gone (laughs) cross-eyed. Hey, you mentioned that um, you didn't think anyone would know the song. That is both true and untrue of me, because I technically had never heard this song. But when I was younger, I realized upon listening to this that I was actually taught the main guitar riff. Because huh. I listened to that and I went, wait a minute. You were like muscle memorying it, your fingers twitching, like born identity. Yeah. Huh. You were in Gomez. Wow, eh? At first it was surprising that I just became a member of the cast. <laughs> so yeah, I, I had a little bit of like weird abstracted nostalgia to kind of add in here as well. I dig it. I think you, everything you say about it being warm is um, on the money there. and But also just like really expansive. Like there's a lot mm. of uh, air and space um, in this song. Yeah. I thought you were going to end it there. Like, fun fact about life is actually a lot of air and space. <laughs> yep. <laughs> We've already got so many tags on our podcast in terms of like, you know, anyone we can possibly include in terms of topics. I'm 100% doing a tag for science now. Yeah. We're a science podcast. That's right. <laughs> Adam, did your guitar teacher try and pass it off as one of his own? Like, no. Here's <laughs> one that you can learn that I wrote like a few months ago. Which guitar teacher does that? I don't know, man. I don't play guitar. A good one. <laughs> a confident one. <laughs> a very confident one. No, my guitar teacher was legit. He said, this is by Gomez. Well, they're here often enough. Maybe it was Mr. Gomez. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> please, please. Mr. Gomez was their father. <laughs> a few little um, guitar lessons mid-tour. Why not? Yeah, a bit of extra scratch. Yeah. 40 bucks. Nothing to, like, wink at. <laughs> Mercury Prize doesn't pay that well anymore, so. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, it's, what, 10 quid? <laughs> exactly. I think you'll find nearly every Mercury Prize winner couple of years later is doing guitar lessons in Australia, daylighting on their tour. (laughs) So uh, it's Ben Otterwell uh, doing the lead vocals on this one, in case you were confused why uh, the uh, low and raspy voice uh, differentiating from uh, last week where we talked about Machismo, which features Mr. Ian Ball as the lead vocalist, as uh, we uh, brought up. I think I prefer this Gomez. 
I like Mr. Soulful Gravel. Oh, um, yes. That we have mm. here. It's, uh, it's my preference. Don't know about anyone else. It's very Soulful Gravel. Yeah, he has a great voice. He sings lead on my personal favourite Gomez song, which is the song How We Operate. He also sings on a song with a fantastic title, which is Love is Greater Than a Warm Trombone, <laughs> which I'm not going to explain. I'm like, I'm not a scientist. <laughs> well, as a scientist, and just to add a little bit more science content into this science podcast. By all means. I imagine that due to the nature of metal, if you heated a trombone, it would stay warm for quite a quite a long time. Maybe. <laughs> I got a soft maybe come back from that. Good. <laughs> I guess most things retain heat for a period. Yeah. Mm, you can't argue with that. Definitely for longer than no time. So, mm. But metal, like, it, it heats up. Or does it, like, heat up and then cool down? For, hmm. I feel like it would heat up and then cool down quite quickly because mm. it's a conductor, right? Not an insulator. But there's a reason that, like, like metal retains heat better than, like, yeah. like wood, right? Not if it's on fire. Hang on, let's talk science. If you light wood on fire, it's quite hot. And it's very hard to play a wooden trombone, especially when it's on fire. <laughs> Science. Science. <laughs> this is your favourite science podcast. Get a good, like, science sting and just keep throwing it in. Oh, I, I, okay. I definitely will. Adam, uh, insert your science sting here. It can, can be like Neil deGrasse Tyson dunking on something from a movie that nobody gives a shit about. <laughs> Did you just call him Neil deGrasse Tyson? Like the high school? Yeah. Yeah. At first he was just a standard character and then he became part of the main cast. It's Neil deGrasse Tyson. (laughs) It's deGrasse. Neil deGrasse Junior High Tyson. Yeah, the The next next generation. generation. (laughs) He taught Drake science. Yeah, yeah. Started at the bottom of AP Bio, now we're here. (laughs) He was in the back of the class on his phone the whole time. Yeah. It's like the dilemma video. He's sending messages via Excel spreadsheet. That's so quality, man. I love that so much. <laughs> it's so yeah. good. Oh, man. Falls into one of my favorite tropes from media, which is bad hacking kind of shit. Oh, yes. Any movie that has someone go, go like, I'm in, oh, is the best movie. Dude, live with that shit. We're going to mention Swordfish. Swordfish. <laughs> yeah, there it's it coming back. Yeah, it, it actually is coming, coming back. back. God damn it. Swordfish. Two episodes Swordfish. in a row. Swordfish. Swordfish. Two episodes Swordfish. in a row we've talked about fucking Sword. When was that? Was that a 2000s movie? Yeah, yeah. 2001. God damn it. But the good news is we can rent it off Google Play for $3.99. Uh, $4.99 for HD, y'all. If you guys are feeling particularly saucy. Fucking Swordfish demands like 4K quality, man. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Wow, it does not have a good Rotten Tomatoes score. 25%. There was kind of like a famous thing, right? Like Halle Berry, like they were really pushing for her to do that topless scene. And like she was like, no, nah, I'm not interested in doing that. I don't really want to shoot nude scenes. And then like, we'll give you like an extra like several million dollars. And she's like, okay. It was 250 grand a tit. Yeah. Half a mil. Half a mil to get the girls out. Fucking like make that Skrilla. Like I think Halle Berry is a good actress. But it, just, it just feels so fucking classic skeevy Hollywood like Absolutely superfluous. Like, what was the movie that she was in with Clint Eastwood? The one that she won the award for and was like, oh my God, oh my God. Was it Monsters? Monsters Ball. I, I, it's not, not Monsters Inc. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't Clint Eastwood, was it Monsters Ball? None, oh, oh God. God. None of this is Gomez. The members of Gomez are still at my house and they're very upset that we stopped talking about their song for some time. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know who it was? It was the dad from Everybody Loves Raymond. It was Frank Barone. Oh. Yeah. He got his tits out. Well, good for him. Peter Boyle, by the, na- by the way, was the name of the guy I was thinking of. In the end, only a couple of people loved Raymond, much like Gomez. <laughs> <laughs> Brought it back. 
Science. <laughs> science. Woo! Science. The math checks out. Number 34. This is a perfect circle with Judah. At number 34 in the 2000 Hottest 100, that is the song Judith. It comes from the album Murder Noms. A perfect circle making their debut in the Hottest 100, but its lead singer, no stranger to this particular countdown. Indeed, a silver medalist in his own right, Mr. Maynard James Keenan. And a guy that loves himself a bit of Maynard is Mr. Adam Buncher. Tell us about A Perfect Circle, my friend. Oh, gone from like science to faith. Yes, indeed. Um, mm. The big two. Yeah. You could have said science to math because it's a perfect circle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they can be both. Mm. Also true. That's science. <laughs> Hadn't thought of that. If science has taught us anything is that things can be more than one thing. Things can be both. <laughs> That's science. As science loves to say, things can be both. <laughs> Just ask Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> All right, so yeah, as you said, this is the side project of Tool vocalist Maynard James Keenan and Billy Howardell. It was kind of his baby to start with, Billy's. Um, he was a guitar tech for Tool during Anima and the tours there, um, as well as a few other bands around that time. He's also a sound engineer. He became quite good friends with Maynard through that. Hard to do, you got to imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Would be true. Dude, just doffer the hat to him. <laughs> he ended up showing him demos for this music that he was working on himself. And Keenan basically said, yeah, I mean, I can hear myself singing these songs. And Billy originally wanted a female vocalist. But, you know, you get an offer from the lead singer of Tool, I imagine you you take that offer. So he did. Oh, yeah. You get an offer from like a straight white dude. You're like, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> this is really going to set us apart in the... Rockfield. How could I say no? In terms of like uh, live performances or whatever, like a perfect circle just instantly kind of took off. Tool was kind of huge at the time as well. And APC, they originally supported Nine Inch Nails, but like a headlining tour for themselves was not far off from there. Yeah. And to differentiate themselves even more from Tool in a live performance setting, Maynard is known for wearing long wigs when he performs here. Similar similar style of performance, though. He'd always be up the back and kind of off to the side, inverting the idea of, like, literally a front man. But I think in terms of, like, you're kind of banking on the credit of having this front man from an already successful band, the sound generated by A Perfect Circle kind of trades on that really well because it definitely carries tools completely unrivaled as I see it, knack around kind of dynamics and blooming into these beautiful spacious crescendos, just taking this track as an example as well. It sounds enough like Tool, but without the kind of denser, more intellectual, proggier elements, they've kind of traded that to be more in line with 
other alternative rock at the time and, and having a raw kind of more emotional feel. And that was definitely kind of deliberate in terms of the composition of the songs themselves as well. I was kind of surprised to know that A Perfect Circle came more from Billy Howardell to start with because in terms of the writing of this song and its meaning, it's 100% Maynard. On the surface level, I admit, if you listen to this song, I don't know how many of you guys kind of just got this to start with. It does carry a little bit of like a atheist destroys Christian in debate, must watch kind of vibe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it, it's, it's worth like flagging that to start with. But I think that that's like really easily dealt with once you peel back and, and get to the personal details and the context that comes in the creation of the song. Because Maynard wrote this for his mother, Judith Marie Keenan, which is where the name of the song comes from. Now, she had a, a brain aneurysm in 1976 when Maynard was 11, and then she died in 2003. Probably around the time that the second uh, A Perfect Circle album came out and before 10,000 Days by Tool, importantly, was released, um, which came out in 2006. Um, and I'll talk about why that's important in a second. Judith was a devout and devoted Christian for her entire life, and that's kind of what Maynard is grappling with in this song. In a really raw and angry kind of way, he just can't fathom how someone can be so devoted when they've suffered such misfortune for no reason, seemingly, in their own life. And that's really what's coming through in the lyrics. You know, just just look at them and, and I think it's pretty face value. There's no metaphors. It's it's pretty straight out, which I think is essential to kind of to the, the, the raw expression um, and the raw emotions that kind of come from writing such a personal song. And really what I think you get is a sense of Maynard struggling with the whole thing. I think there's a lot of allusions to things that are unsaid in the lyrics. He's expressing kind of one note and one dynamic, but once you know the context of the song, there's probably more things working there, particularly just ideas of like grief, right? But also just like the central theological question behind it about, you know, okay, you have this idea of an all-loving God, why would they inflict some suffering on someone who was devoted to them? Like that's, that's real. Right. And on that, like uh, looking at this song for this podcast was the first time I saw the single artwork, which is a kid in a helicopter hat burning an ant while there's this other girl looking on at him adoringly. And I'm like, fuck, I love this song viewed in comparison to another song that Maynard wrote that made it onto the 10,000 Days record by Tool, which was also about his mother, being the the kind of centerpiece of that album. Lucy Marie Part 2. Right, and the, and, yeah. and the track preceding that as well. Because 10,000 Days itself is a reference to his mother directly and the 27 years that she lived after being paralysed. So you have the song that's written before she died and then the song that's written after she died. And to me, that, that song, 10,000 Days the most emotionally evocative writing that Maynard has ever done, particularly in comparison to this song, because he it's so gentle and accepting of her faith in a way that Judith isn't. And he actually uses phrases like, I only pray that heaven knows when to lift you out. And the kind of centerpiece lyric for that song is when he says, you're the only one who can hold your head up high, shake your fists at the gates saying, I have come home now, fetch me the spirit, the son and the father and tell them their pillar of faith has ascended. And him kind of meeting her on her faith in that song and respecting it and having that as a comparison point to this song is so unspeakably beautiful to me. I'm a bit of a sucker for songs that kind of deal with faith in really complicated ways anyway. But like... I'm with you, Adam. That 10,000 Days, Lucy Marie Part 2, I think it's probably my favourite Tool song. Oh, man. And hearing like this 
this is more like what good does faith fucking do for you? What's yeah. the fucking point of it if you're still going to goddamn suffer the way my mother did? It's so angry. But then with yeah. wings, he's like, he. Not, it's not even like, oh, you know what, you were right. He's more just like, faith was important to you. I hope it gave you some strength kind of thing. Yeah. I think there's some of that in this song as well, though. Like, obviously it's angry, but there's a love that matches that anger. And like, that's what kind of, what creates the anger and the frustration and whatnot as well. Like, I think he is struggling with it and grappling with it, that that someone can have this experience and this faith that don't go together, but they still manage to hold the two. And I, I like, I feel like I can read... I don't know if it's respect, but certainly love, like in, into that person still, and I think that's what really lifts it, lifts this song into something special for sure. Mm. Mm. Musically, right? Just to, to, to step away from the lyrics just for a moment, mm-hmm. uh, it was surprising to me, Adam, to find out that Maynard wasn't the driving force behind a perfect circle. I was just having a quick look then, and it was always the two of them. It was always Maynard and Billy. Like all the perfect circle songs are composed by the two of them, but like from a musical point of view, it feels like as if. A perfect circle almost served the avenue for Maynard to be like, not necessarily to switch his brain off, because that, that might do the song a disservice. I don't mean to do that, but to not be so conceptually minded in these broad projects. It's just like, you know what? I really, I really like writing heavy rock songs. Let's write some heavy rock songs rather than having to like be lost in his head with mythology and mathematics and grid lines across the globe or whatever yeah exactly right to not have to think about that to just be like you know what's cool riffs let's do some riffs (laughs) but also as someone who you know has expressed many times i i don't listen to a lot of heavy music this song works for me so much more than so much tool stuff because it is emotional and it's not this highfalutin conceptual thing that doesn't connect to the music, this song sounds like the frustration and the grappling that that he's singing about. Like this works really well. I think this is a great song because of that. Because I think these parts complement each other so well. Because Tool, right? Whether you like them or love them or dislike them or hate them, kind of thing, you would agree that they are a the thinking person's metal band, right? Like they deal with these high concept, heady ideas and it reflects in both the lyrics and the music and the mythos surrounding the band. And Tool fans love doing that homework because there's a connection that's felt there and that's not to denigrate that connection. It just is a nerdy band. Mm. A perfect circle feel more like they're a band for the heart, not the mind. Yeah. They're just a, a band that you can connect with on a more visceral level, right? Like even with Tool, right? Like one of the things that set Tool apart is the fact that they are such a heavy metal band but have vocals that are soaring and accessible vocals, right? Like not, it's not like a growl or anything. Yeah. To hear that kind of stuff here with like elements of like alternative rock and grunge rock in here combined with the heavy metal that the band bring with Maynard's soaring vocals. It's just like, this is such a perfect match. They just all work so well together. Like, like, and the fact that he's belting it out with such emotion as well, it means that like the, the chunkiness and the meanness and the, like the fun of the riffs becomes this like passage for his emotion rather than with Tool, it feels more like it's a vehicle for a puzzle that you have to solve, which is, again, a huge appeal for the part of Tool that people love trying to solve those puzzles, and that's fine. But with this, it's more just like a, a visceral thing. It's not as heady. And on that riff as well, like I think it's so fluid and slippery almost. Like it's got this kind of slippery, steely kind of quality. And I think that like that in particular really communicates – some of that anger and aggression, but also the uncomfortability and sitting in that, like kind of what you were talking about, Nathan. And also just like the higher guitar parts, like they feel 
not usual. You know, when I think about Tool and stuff, it's all low end. It's all chug, chug, chug. But like that guitar in, in the chorus is is high and it's piercing and it's like- It's all like that, right? Yeah. yeah it's all really trebly. Yeah. Listen to this. I'm just like, man, do I have to fucking revisit Murder Noms? Because this is fucking cool. I actually redid this record for the first time in ages just recently and- Man, I gotta say, like, I had a lot of fun coming back to this record. Like, uh, yeah, cool. Obviously, you know, this is a band that deserves to be discussed on its own merits, but it's hard to talk about this band without bringing up the fact that there's a big shadow looming over this band. Particularly when it's written from such a central point of view for Maynard, when it's so personal to him. Of course. Totally. This band is a living, breathing definition of a supergroup. What were the other members from? Sorry, David, walk me through this. The drummer was from Primus. Yes, he, uh, so Josh Freese, uh played with, with Primus. Josh Freese has played with a fucking hundred different bands. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's a quick list of other bands where at least one member of that band has been in a perfect circle. Tool, The Smashing Pumpkins, Pixies, Devo, The Vandals, Marilyn Manson, Zwan, Queens of the Stone Age, Chelsea Wolfe, Tinted Windows, Nine Inch Nails, Paramore, Weezer, Eagles of Death Metal, and Poppy. Man, that's a varied fucking list. Jesus Christ. Right? Yeah, not often do you have Smashing Pumpkins, The Vandals, and Poppy in the same list of anything. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Funnily enough, in one of those classic... uh, Oh no, career moves. Paz Lechantin, uh, who was playing bass and uh, also playing violin and doing backing vocals for APC, left APC to join Zwan. And we all know how that went. Uh, she does the cool hair thing in the video for this. Oh yeah, this. yeah, she ties up her hair just before they get into the, into the second verse, which is fucking sick. She now plays in the Pixies, and yeah, so she's been playing with them for about four or five years and killing it as well. The other guy that was uh, playing with them at the time, a uh, guitarist by the name of Troy Van Leeuwen, who ended up leaving a, a perfect circle to join a little rock outfit by the name of Queens of the Stone Age. So he did the opposite of a Zawan. He hopped onto <laughs> yeah, a winning horse and uh, rode that bad boy all the way to fucking Tuna Town. I'll tell you what for. To, to Tuna Town? To Tuna Town. You've never ridden the pony snake all the way to Tuna Town? I don't want to go to Tuna Town. Sounds like it smells. <laughs> That's science. Oh, it does. A whole town made of tuna? <laughs> Nightmare. And someone brought it to work and they're microwaving it in the staff <laughs> kitchen? And they brought a horse there? Nah. Not a vibe, guys. Say no to Tuna Town. <laughs> no. I got nothing against tuna. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm coming across as bigoted towards fish. <laughs> Is that really a concern for you at the moment, do you think? Wow, I don't think you're really considering the fish there, Nathan. I think you're right. <laughs> well, you, th- you think Nathan, who refuses to consume tuna, is being inconsiderate? <laughs> I also refuse to consume tuna. So we're all okay. Nobody's horny for tuna. Yay. Especially not a whole town of it. That's too much tuna. That's too much tuna fish. <laughs> too much tuna. Oh, man. But, um, yeah, I have a lot of love for APC. I have a lot of love for Murder Noms. This coming month uh, will be the 20th anniversary of Murder Noms. So uh, if you haven't listened in a while, go back and check it out. And if you haven't done it at all, have a listen and see what you reckon. Because, uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot to enjoy there. It's a, it's a really, really solid record. Wasn't the new one a stinker? Eat the Elephant? It wasn't great. Also against that. Also, I have to say, not don't do that. Yeah. It might have been a conceptual elephant. Um, 
I don't imagine that would be very filling. Also, it had like the worst album art that I've ever fucking seen. Oh, it's really bad. It's like the Joker if the Joker was album art. <laughs> <laughs> Motherfucker's holding an octopus. It's really bad. It's really upsetting. Oh, wow. That is really bad. Some hot garbage. Well, this is not hot garbage and this is a good song. Oh, fuck. Yeah, bud. Like just really, really applaud Maynard for being able to kind of express the things that he is expressing in this track and then you know to to revisit that in in the way that he did in that other mentioned track in 10,000 days like I just I'm so thankful for those two songs because I think like yeah man just taken together it's just fucking it blows me away it's remarkable at number 33 this is Grinspoon with Rockshire Number 33 in the 2000 Hottest 100. That's the song Rock Show, Nathan. Mm. Now, uh, we... Well, he doesn't get a, you know how to rock shows. <laughs> I mean, it goes without saying. Wow. It uh, would be nice to say it all the same. <laughs> <laughs> we best not. We best not. Yeah, we don't have time. <laughs> We're running a tight ship here, obviously. <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's, let's keep the focus. Don't make me laugh bitterly. <laughs> We've talked plenty about Grinspoon in the past. I think as things have gone on, Nathan, I think you've gotten generally a bit more positive towards them. Like the first few things where it was a bit more like groove medley and new medley and just kind of like teenagers smoking bongs and tuning down to drop D. You're just like, yeah. But I think <laughs> as it's gone on a little bit, you've kind of warmed to them a little bit. Yeah. We're, we're back with another big headbanging uh, drop B song. Is it drop B? Yes. I didn't know letters got that low. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, the, it's the second lowest you can go, my friend. Wow. Here's the science team. <laughs> <laughs> this is the third single from Easy. We've already talked about the first two, Secrets and Ready One. Yep. You know, across the three songs, we're really seeing Grinspoon mature as songwriters. Mm. You know, they're still tuning their instruments way down and they're still finding those big sludgy riffs. But there's also... I feel like there's just more space in the songs and this, this is a really good one for that. Yeah. Particularly in the verses, there's so much space for Phil, who I think is really at the same time watching them develop, like we're watching Phil develop as a singer as well. I think there's so much more space in this song for him to be an impressive rock vocalist. Like it's really cool. And at the same time, you get all these lovely little like colours of psychedelic guitar in the verses that are quite nice too. And, and you know, you still have 
the big riff at the end of the day, which feels like it's very much still about that. Oh, yeah, in a big way. Yeah, the whole like songs about the sort of artificial, facile nature of rock, there's been plenty of them. I, I don't think it, this stands out for the content of the song, but I think Phil's voice is great and I think the band are really, really good. Like I love how much space they build into this song for everything to kind of shift around. So I like it. One of the best things about this song is it's clear how comfortable the band are working together. Again, right, the space, the main riff that comes in after the chorus kind of thing is fucking really great post-grunge rocky groove. Again, Phil's vocals, this is like clearly a band who really, by this point in their career, really know how to operate together as a unit. I think that really comes through terrifically in this track. I think so too. Yeah, Grinspoon, like the rest of us, have shifted from being like out in the field to like being your at-home takeaway Grinspoon. <laughs> this isn't like the, the last song of the set, you're down five beers. This is like doesn't even get played on the set list, you're at home with a doob Grinspoon. <laughs> I kind of love that gear for them. And you're so right about what you said about Phil. Like, And you, you need no better fucking example of that than the fact that he can't even be asked coming in on time. <laughs> like he, he'll start his fucking verse when he's goddamn good and ready. Thanks very much. It's just like, I said the house, how cool they sounded when we talked about secrets. And I think they're even like fucking cooler here. They just got it. And they know you want it and whatever, just kick back, take a, take a bean bag. Um, yeah. Just take a bean bag. As they say, <laughs> pull up a bag, take a cheeky BB, have a lava lamp, grab one on your way in. Lava lamps are science, um, I have to say. <laughs> Lava lamp is a science. <laughs> yep, they're, they're a science. <laughs> yep, you got your geology and whatever light is, I guess, <laughs> physics. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, man, you thought of everything. It's all physics, though, right? <laughs> I guess. It's all physics, baby. Science. That's like when people talk about like, like the five senses or whatever. Like you got like sight and hearing and like the other ones. <laughs> it's all thinking, right? Well, it's, it's all physics. It's all touch. Dude. All of them are touch. Science has gone too far. I am uncomfortable with this level of science now. <laughs> yeah. Can we dial it back a bit? <laughs> we... They need to be stopped. When you're like drinking a glass of wine and partaking one of your favorite pornos, like you're actually just touching that porno with your eyes. Nice. Yeah. See you later, virgins. <laughs> just thanks for including me. Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's just nice to be here, guys. <laughs> I think this song could probably be, could stand to be a little bit shorter for me because once the uh, the first chorus comes and goes, it's kind of in its groove and it doesn't really change. If it was like maybe a tight 310 or so, that'd be a bit better for me than pushing the four min mark. Yeah, that's fair. I still think this is a great example of why Grinspoon were very, very terrific at this point. They were working great as a band. They all knew their parts to be really well. They could write some killer riffs. Phil was absolutely projecting from the diaphragm like a motherfucker just with that terrific vocal performance. And this is like a, a really great example of why they deserve to be in the 30s, right? Like, it's not exactly my cup of rock show, but it is a fucking well done song. You're happy to touch it with your ears. Yeah, yeah. My ears can give it a little touch as a treat. <laughs> yeah, like, this is a really, really strong track. We've talked a lot about Pat's really driving guitar work and just bringing on the really snarly low-end kind of chug and complementing that with the higher range stuff that Phil's going for. I feel like those two work really, really well together in that regard, particularly on this record. 
as you mentioned, this is nothing new. They're kind of dissecting an industry that they've been around for a hot minute. The video was obviously a, a big uh, send-up of that. I like the video. The video is very fun. It is a great video, yeah. Very Price is Right. Yeah, <laughs> especially because now you can very much imagine Jamo as like a, a host of something. Like he just has that kind of charm to him. <laughs> I could totally see him getting away with that now. It's true. I hope it never comes to that, but... Hey, look, man, Henry Waggons has been doing the the hosting on, on that Delivered Live thing, and he's been an absolute charmer. It just takes the right amount of charisma to make something like that work, and Jammo's got charisma in spades, especially now that he's like kind of a household name within Australian music. So that's basically why I still call him Uncle Jammo, just because like everyone that knows him just loves him. He took a bunch of my friends' bands out on tour uh, at the end of last year, which was Gooch Palms and and the Heartaches and Bugs, and took them under his wing and like really supported them. Just seeing that whole tour family together was like unreal, and just really drove home for me how influential Grinspoon are on Australian music and how. Like, they do not take their role lightly now that they've been given the chance to have this second go-around because, obviously, they split up in 2013 and then they got back together around 2016, 2017. They've kind of had a pretty solid run of shows back ever since and a whole new generation of bands that grew up listening to them, you know, the same way that they grew up listening to the hard-ons and fucking X and whoever else. It's come full circle and Grinspoon are that band for people in their 20s and, and early 30s and stuff like that. So it's been a really cool thing to see that kind of passing of the baton and like really see Grinspoon drive home I guess their legacy and and their influential nature and like not being pricks about it, like just really genuinely being a supportive band. A lot of bands in their position would just take out their old mates from back in the day, you know. Grinners were just like, no, nah, we want to take out new bands. Like when they did the Guide to Better Living tour, they took out Hockey Dad. That was fucking huge, huge deal for them. Yeah, it's the same with a lot of those sort of bands, and I I pay the fuck out of that. Living Ender in a pretty similar position. Something for Kate as well. Like a lot of bands are just really driving home the fact that yeah, you might be coming for us to see nostalgia, but pay attention to these bands as well because they're the bands you're going to be watching after we're wrapped up and we're retired and stuff. You know, you can't deny that Grinspoon as a band fucking rule for the Australian rock scene. Yeah, 100%. No matter how much you fuck with them, it rules that they were and are here. Like, it just fucking rules. As you said, Jamo is charismatic out the ass, and the band fucking kick and the, again, have t- taken those younger bands on tour. Like, they just are a objectively cool part of the Australian music industry. They just are. 100% now. And also, on a personal level, discovering just how much that legacy is deserved through going through the countdowns is definitely a real vibe for me. Mm. And I think this is kind of the song that was just one song enough to make me go like, okay, no, Grinspoon fucking roll. Grinspoon as a band, I was on the side of like, I like some Grinspoon songs and now I'm like, nah, Grinspoon roll. Yeah, totally. This was the fucking last straw. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Right, that's it. (laughs) I have had it with not being a Grinspoon fan as of this moment. Listen here, you sons of bitches. I've tried long and hard about this, but fuck it. I like you. <laughs> I like it when you touch my ears with your sounds. Yeah. Science. Science. Bitch. Science, baby. 
And number 32, this is Spiller, featuring Sophie Ellis Baxter, with the song Groove Jet. If this ain't love. debut in the Hottest 100 coming in at number 32 in the 2000 countdown. That is the song Groove Jet If This Ain't Love featuring the vocals of English singer Sophie Ellis Baxter, a woman who has long been saddled with the term one hit wonder. Due to not 18 months after this song coming out, her own song, Murder on the Dance Floor, tearing up the charts on a global scale. I feel like that should count as two hits. That's exactly my point. On a technicality, even though it's technically not quote-unquote her song, you cannot have Groove Jet without Sophie Ellis Baxter. Her sophisticated, pronunciated, and very, very refined and gorgeous delivery on this defines this song. She's the only pop star who sounds like she's also the headmistress of a finishing school. (laughs) (laughs) Who eats soup with numerous different spoons depending on how hot or cold the soup is. I don't, I I think this is just a weird byproduct of like Australian cultural cringe, but like I up until like six hours ago thought that she was Australian. I had a similar thing with Fatboy Slim. It's just one of those things where they were in the country a lot around that point. Like she did Rove Live and like... Oh, who didn't do Rove Live? (laughs) What the... All the stars come out to play on Rove Live. <laughs> Peter Hellier! But I think there was just something about like the two big songs happening in fairly close succession and obviously they went nuts in Australia. They did as well here as they did anywhere else. She's obviously got an, an English accent, but so does half of the Australian entertainment industry. So Yeah, this is very true. In my head, she was Australian and I put her in the same box as like Nikki Webster and like that kind of turn of the century pop cringe stuff. Yeah. Well, look, I definitely want to put the call out now because sometimes, you know, science podcasts can make miracles happen. Um, Dave Hughes, if you feel like re-recording Groove Jet uh, with your own vocals over the top of it, just go ahead and do that. Just go ahead. No one is stopping you, Dave Hughes. Dave Hughes, none of us are standing in your way. Do you know what I reckon Hughesy would say if you asked him to do that? He'd say, no, thank you. Oh, <laughs> played by Hughes oh, Jeez, I'm not very happy this week. <laughs> uh, it's not love, but it still feels good. Oh, no. And now I've got to pick up the kids. Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> feels good, doesn't it? <laughs> See, this is us preempting that he's not going to do it. So <laughs> we think it would sound a little something like this. Went yeah. to buy a packet of snakes alive the other day and they were all dead. <laughs> No, you're just doing Husey material. It's got nothing to do with Groove Jet anymore. Yeah, he's just absolutely doing Husey material. He forgets the words, so he just starts doing gear. <laughs> <laughs> just completely out of time. Bloody hell. Well, 
no Australians are involved in this song. Indeed, Sophie Ellis-Baxter comes from the United Kingdom and Spiller, aka Cristiano Spiller, comes to us from Venice. Now, he was a house producer that kind of got a break in the European club scene in the late 90s and by 2000, he took one of his instrumental tracks called Groove Jet and got vocals on it, care of Sophie Ellis Baxter, and ended up with one of the biggest smash hits of the decade. It went double platinum here. It went platinum in the US and it went platinum in New Zealand. It went gold in Great Britain. It was added to Sophie Ellis Baxter's album Read My Lips, so that got it even more coverage. And 20 years on, it remains the signature song of both of these two artists. And also, there's another fun fact of why this song is integral to music history. Would you like to hear it? I know what you're going to say, actually, Adam. Mm -hmm. So don't bother saying it. (laughs) Okay. It was the first song ever played on The Glass House. (laughs) It's the first song ever played on something. The humble iPod. The iPod. The scientific music device (laughs) known as the intellectual pod. pod. The intellectual pod. (laughs) No, the intellectual pod is what they call us. (laughs) 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 Rotate some cubes. (laughs) Rotating some like fifths of music in my head. I'm just completing chord progressions in my mind. Yeah, same. That's why I'm too actually proud to play them on a guitar because I'm just completing them in my mind. So don't ask me to play a guitar ever. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I've completed guitar in my head. But yeah, first song I've played on a pod. Yeah. That's pretty tight, man. Pretty cool. Yeah. Because it had to be some song. (laughs) Why not have it be the biggest song of the season? It, It would have been a very zeitgeisty thing. Look, it's been 20 years and... This song still holds up to me in such a big way. There's just a majesty to the way this sounds. There's that chicken scratch funk guitar that kind of loops through the whole thing. The huge swells of the orchestra, that percussive drop. Oh, it's gorgeous. Even that big harp swell when it goes into the bridge. I die at that bit. You're having a really good time with this song, Deej. I am. I think this is a masterpiece. I did not appreciate this song at all when I was a kid. Like, I was nine when this song came out and I thought it was annoying, you know, especially because a girl was on it and girls are annoying, especially when you're a little boy. (laughs) Preach, brother. This dude knows what's up. (laughs) So, like, I didn't appreciate this for years, probably even a decade. About 2014, when Sophie Ellis Baxter put out a comeback record and I listened to it, I'm just like, actually, this is pretty tight. Maybe me, a dumbass fucking nine-year-old with one finger up my nose and another up my asshole, was wrong about something. And it turns out I fucking was. (laughs) Who'd have guessed it? It's very big of you to admit that. Yeah. (laughs) Very big of you to judge yourself at nine. Yeah. I hope one day I could admit to being wrong at nine years old, but that day is not today. (laughs) Not today, baby. No, I was nine-year-old me was fucking on it, man. (laughs) <laughs> I'll bet. Yeah. What's also interesting about this song, as you said, David, it was originally, it was actually released as an instrumental. Like, I, I, it was, that was its first release um, in early 2000. Yeah, right. I, ha- I, I haven't heard it. No, why would you bother? <laughs> I, I've got the version I need. Get him. Get him. Drag him. Take, take that Cristiano Spiller. It was built on the sample Love Is You, a disco song by Cara Williams and the Sal Sol Orchestra. And then to make it more palatable, the thing the label brought in Ellis Baxter and 
then it was reworked like because originally the way she sang it was she said um and so it goes how does it feel so good and then of course it was chopped up as if it's ain't love why does it feel so good so it's interesting like as much as yes i do agree it's one of bexter's hits he's not a one-hit one because this song is a hit but the hook itself is not her production. Did they re-record it or did they just... Just chop the vocals up. Which is just another feather in the cap of this song to me. Like the arrangement and the production and everything is just so creative. The thing that is just kind of weird about this for me is remembering this was like a zeitgeist, like massive, massive song, but we're talking about it on the Triple J alternative radio hottest 100. So for me, it's like a chicken and egg situation. Did this get big on Triple J before it cracked into the mainstream or was it kind of a simultaneous thing? Well, just as someone who's done a podcast about the hottest 100 for the last, you know, seven years or whatever, I think that there is a precedent (laughs) of quite a few other songs that resemble this enough. We've heard songs that sound like this specifically we've heard sing it back and music sounds better with you i mean that's certainly true and that's just this year yeah yeah this got to number one in australia in november so that would have been while votes were about to be yeah, open true. Right, i guess it definitely would have peaked before the countdown happened which is quite interesting but also what a couple of years ago like this was in a list of like best vocal house anthems ever so i think like it's had a very consistent club popularity the whole time as well yeah even though it did cross over into the charts i think it's still a legit club banger i guess yeah i like the aesthetic that it draws upon like um similar to when we were talking about maloko a couple of weeks ago i think it has that same european it's sophisticated man it's so sophisticated that kind of romantic kind of chic about it like it's almost got um like a 60s foreign movie kind of vibe. Like I think yeah. this song has subtitles. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> just something about like the, just the bongos and the harp samples and the string samples and just the kind of romantic nature of all those things. I don't know. It's just like deviled eggs and fucking deviled weird eggs? swimwear. Oh, fuck yeah, fucking 60s shit, man. Deviled eggs and swimwear and beehives and... Fucking yeah, I'm I'm with you except for the deviled eggs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and fucking oh, man. Jello, man. Nathan's a good Christian boy, and he doesn't want a devil in his eggs. <laughs> yeah, I prefer Jesus eggs. <laughs> Jesus me up some eggs, boy. Yeah, Jesus eggs or Easter. Jesus take the eggs. <laughs> yeah, honestly though, like I objectively get why it's a well done song. Like I get that, but it's not something that I ever really want to go back to. I, I don't think it's okay. as good as Sing It Back or Music Sounds Better. With what you. stops it from being? Uh, as good as those songs for you. I guess maybe it's not quite as rooted in actual house music for me. Right. It sounds a bit more like just a traditional pop song that does like a house banger. But it's not pop enough either. This is the thing. Like I think it falls between the cracks of like house and pop. And as time has progressed, that's kind of come just like a bit of a Muzaki no man's land where you only ever hear it in the context of itself as a nostalgic thing. Mm. I don't know what DJ would be dropping this aside from a, like a, a retro night kind of DJ. It has major, um, oh, this is a deep Wollongong cut. It's major Illawarra hotel retro night vibes. Yeah, man. Yeah, definitely. All the Wollongong listeners are deeply, deeply triggered. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. For us having said that, we are sorry. Um, In a big way. Including myself. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to myself for making this podcast. <laughs> But hey, sometimes you've got to do. In the future, 
science will have progressed to such an extent that we could perhaps selectively eliminate memories of Retro Night at Hotel Illawarra. (laughs) (laughs) Just those. But until then, why does it feel? Why does it feel? Why does it feel so feel? (laughs) It's the remix of that one. (laughs) (laughs) That'd that'd be the fucking Vaporwave cut. Jesus Christ. Actually, you know what? I'm back on board. <laughs> <laughs> I'm upset. At number 31, this is Travis with Why Does It Always Rain On Me? Number 31 in the 2000 Hottest 100. That is their signature song, Why Does It Always Rain On Me? And we are going to throw to Mr. Adam Buncher, the saddest Irish bastard that we have. Buddy. Irish? Scottish. They're Scottish. Were they Scottish? I swore they were fucking Irish. Don't be bringing in that shite hair, lad. (laughs) Call it the wrong thing. I should do you, man. <laughs> I've gotten that out of my system. I was I was under the impression for like the entire t- this that's just blown a gasket for me. Fuck. I feel like Nathan, like with fucking Sophie Ellis Baxter. Mm. In the words of our good friend Batman, so that's what that feels like. <laughs> Why does it feel? Why does it feel? Let's try this again. Adam. Mm-hmm. Hello. Lud. Hello, Lud. Oi, Lud. What is your relationship? With the song, Why Does It Always Rain On Me, by the Scottish band, Travis. I have one, peripherally. I assumed you would. It's one of those songs. Considering you worked in commercial radio, and this song got fucking flogged, and you also used to live with a guy that was uh, a big Travis fan as well. I did, yeah. A Travis fan? I don't think I've ever met one. Are you a Travis fan denier, Nathan? Or maybe. Uh, No, I assume there are some. They call themselves Travisoids. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> Again, with the science and stuff. Because like a trapezoid is like a science. Yeah, no, so. I, I was there. I was there. A yeah, trapezoid good. is like a science. Good. Um, yeah. So they got there, is what I'm saying. Travis got there. They got to the point where they could have fans and they got to the point where this song became a little bit of a staple. Yeah. Travis fans are very vocal people. Like uh, some might even call them Travis Barkers. <laughs> Thank you and good night. Ooh, too much fucking tuna fish there. Oh, I don't. Where are these guys from? Is it Glasgow? Yeah. So they're Travis Scots. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> I want. I want to get off the podcast. <laughs> 
Someone's <laughs> you make that joke and I get those goosebumps every time. We shall not talk about one third of the Holy Trinity in such a in such a way. All right, Adam. <laughs> Especially in relation to hip hop. But as I said, they did have a little bit of a rough time of it kind of getting started. I mean, as as I, I guess you kind of would if you were a, a band in, in Glasgow or whatever, you're not instantly playing to the, the biggest audiences. So they found it kind of hard to um to get out of there. They had a little bit of buzz natively, but things kind of really first took off with this New York guy called Nick Bolas. And he was known for working with Neil Young and the, and the Stones, the Rolling Stones, that is. So he heard them when he was in Scotland. And according to the band, he kind of came in and kicked their ass a bit. They'd won a bunch of local talent competitions and stuff. But he came in and was like, right, here's how you actually be a band. Um, and apparently that was the real turning point for them. This comes off their album, uh, The Man Who, which is abbreviated from the title of the book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by the neurologist Oliver Sacks. Good book. That album kind of got released without a lot of fanfare as well. And it kind of circled around in, in middling chart positions. The band were, were kind of somewhat established at this point. But then kind of this song started to break through and particularly their performance at the 1999 Glastonbury Festival, where after it miraculously not raining for several hours, began to rain just as the first line of this song was sung. And people kind of just like who were there to witness this moment kind of really just like got behind that. And and from what I can tell, that was a really pivotal thing for the band kind of exploding outwards again. That's very funny to me. What do you credit for your success? The weather. <laughs> in terms of the writing of the song as well, uh, Fran Healy, who wrote the song, uh, he wrote it while he was on holiday in Israel in a place that was not known for its rain. Um, and yet for the two days where he was staying, it rained. And so he thought to himself... Uh-huh. <laughs> title of the song. Title of the song. Look, um, I guess I have to go here, don't I? I was the first one summoned up. I was really going to hold this until later, but... You've got it, man. Go for it. This fucking... This, it sucks. It fucking sucks. <laughs> I, I, fu- I, <laughs> I didn't know which Woo! way I was going to go, mate. It fucks me up the wall. It is this twee-plodding, impotent, somehow derivative and yet also reaching new levels of banality, somehow both self-pitying and self-congratulating at the same time. The kind of song that, like, you'd listen to Wonderwall and you'd be like, yeah, something like that, but just not quite as edgy, thanks. (laughs) Or like Neil Diamond, but just a little bit less kind of racy. Like, I think what it boils down to for me is I have no fucking time for half-assed misery, okay? You can either be fully fucking irreparably miserable in which case I welcome you with open arms. <laughs> but this song only manages to reach the, the level of sad of like a heartbreak scene in a shitty British rom-com. And I just don't care that Hugh Grant is having a roughie. <laughs> like, I can't believe it. Uh, oh no. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, exactly. Somehow appears to be raining directly on my person. And that's just not, that's just, that's just not cricket. Chin up soldier. I'm sorry that you're slightly inconvenienced. Maybe get back to me when your entire fucking brain chemistry breaks down, champion. Adam, I'm with you. I don't fuck with this song at all. I think it's dorky and dweeby. But I do think this is, even how much I dislike it, I think this is what Coldplay should be trying to do. Yo, yo, Andrew, you know what's so fucking funny? What? There is a member of this band called Chris Martin. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's also it's spelled with amazing. a Y. It's spelled with a Y. Well, well oh, stop, no. stop, stop. Wow. Where is the Y? 
between the T and the N. Science. Oh, I thought it was in Chris. <laughs> oh, God. C-H-R-Y-S. Chris Martin. You know what's even funnier? Um, there is another member of the Martin family in the band, his brother, Jeff. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> the rain is an illusion. Travis has a Chris Martin, <laughs> Jeff Martin. Wow. Just to pick up the Coldplay thing, just because I think it's quite interesting and we'll never talk about Travis after this. So, Oh, do we not? No, we don't. Um, So they really sing a couple of years after. Sing was yes. even bigger than this. And I think it's far, far fucking better. Sing was like the most played song in the UK the year it came out. Like it was massive. It's really good. Tell you who does a great version of Sing. Who? Motherfucking Glenn Campbell. Oh, yeah. He, he recorded Campbell. that for his final ever out. Yeah, Glenn Campbell. As in the guy from, the guy from like... Channel Channel Nine Breakfast? No, that's no. <laughs> as in the rhinestone cowboy. I was thinking of David Campbell. <laughs> Jesus Christ, dude! My brain is fucking broken. Oh boy! <laughs> oh my god! I am the real man who mistook my wife for a yeah. <laughs> so Travis released Sing a little while after, which is you know blowing up, and and off the success of that and. Why does it always rain on me? Particularly at Glastonbury, Travis and Coldplay together as a sort of weird second wave Britpop or whatever you want to call it, are making big headway in the states, mm. which obviously is quite exciting for them. But then in 2002, the drummer of Travis, Neil Primrose, uh, had an accident uh, diving into a shallow swimming pool. He broke his his neck um, and nearly died. Mm. Jesus. He fully recovered afterwards um, and was able to keep playing drums and, and stayed in the band. But because of that, Travis had to kind of stop and eventually regroup and sort of pivoted from there as well and became a bit more, I, I, I don't want to say stripped back or, or more personal in the songwriting. Um, and I think that's probably building towards the Travis that that a lot of those uh, Travisoids uh, really love. Mm. But I think the interesting thing is in that span of time where, where Travis – had to kind of nearly call it quits and, and, and stop touring and everything. That's when Coldplay really gained a lot of momentum in the States and that's what helped spur them on to become so big. Oh. Man, they could have just asked Josh Freese to play drums for them. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. True. But I think that's really interesting that they were on a bit of a trajectory and, and it stopped and, and Coldplay, who were also on that trajectory, um, but Coldplay really picked it up. And kept running with it. I really think that, like, you compare this song to Shiver. Shiver has a lot more to offer, Andrew. No, not that Coldplay. I mean, this is what Coldplay today should be trying to do if they wanted to write better songs. And this song's still not good. Honestly, I think I would take most other Coldplay songs over this song. There's something <laughs> about this song that irks me deep in my waters. Yeah, right, okay. <laughs> it's all tell, not showing. Like, the I don't know. There's something about the way he sings I Can't Stand Myself that just doesn't ring true for me and I don't know whether it's just like it's a sad song but it's overproduced and so I, I don't engage with it emotionally you've mentioned production do you know who the producer for this album was it was our good friend Nigel wasn't it Nigel MF Godrich huh. true the same, the same man who produced okay MF computer <laughs> well we all need money <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think Nigel working with them and, and all that stuff speaks to Travis being a better band than this song suggests. Mm. And it's not close enough to the kind of stuff I'm into that I'm going to investigate that, but I will 
understand the Travisoids that put it out there <laughs> that they like it. Yeah. Are you getting attacked by a crow? No, there's one outside though, man. Fuck! Oh, Fuck. of course the crow. The crow belongs to Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> That, that, that checks out. I'd love to have a crow as a friend, man. Crow pet would be tight. They're smart. You can mm-hmm. like train them. They mm-hmm. hang on your shoulder and like, you give them little treats. They can look at you. It's a cool it's great. crow thing. They're, if anyone's ever fucking with you, you gotta, if you summon a crow, they're not going to fuck with you anymore. You summon it. Like a falconer, right? They put their arm out mm. and the bird comes back and is like, sup, yeah. bro? Sorry, I was being a bird. Yeah. You know how it is. You know I can fly, mm. yeah. You know, that's infinitely better than standing. So yeah. I'm obviously going to do it most of the time. <laughs> and yeah. that's why this song's a bit of a stinker. <laughs> yeah, be- because you're a goth falconer. I pay it. I pay it. I not. I don't say that as a. I think that's cool. Science. Com- <laughs> commanding animals. Mm. Uh, give it a science sting. Deej, what do you think of this song? So, like, I genuinely wanted to give this song a second chance because, again, this was something I thought was kind of naff and kind of boring or whatever when I was a kid. And I was just like, oh, maybe this is another Groove Jet situation. Maybe I'm misremembering the song or anything like that. But no, I come back to this and it's just, like, very M.O.R. and very just dreary and nondescript and yeah like sing is like an infinitely better song in every conceivable way but yeah obviously this was the big hit there's no rhyme or reason that comes to that sort of stuff but literally the only thing that really stood out that i remembered about this song was us being kids and my sister Eloise taking this song quite literally and any time this song would come on the radio, we were like nine, ten years old or whatever and like the chorus obviously goes, why does it always rain on me? And she just, without missing a beat, every time would just go, because there's clouds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, science, baby. I prefer that. <laughs> that's good science. Good science. It's been yeah. like 20 years and I can't unhear that version. Like that's that's what I hear every single time. I'm like trying to like properly yeah. listen to this song again. And it's just like, it's not happening. <laughs> I think because they're both sort of sad British songs that came out around the turn of the century. This just always feels like an inferior version of like the drugs don't work by the Verve. Yeah. Yes. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. True. Oh my God. That's, ex- that's exactly what I'm talking about in terms of like yeah. proper misery. Yeah. Yeah. Give me that like, any day. Because the drugs don't work is so fucking sad. Like, it's, it's so abject, sad. It's abject and sorrow. And it's a great song too. And yep. I think as a 12 year old, I was like, holy shit, this is like what sadness sounds like in yeah. a song. And I was like, holy shit, I thought drugs ruled. I better try them a bunch when I get older. <laughs> See, just, just- I thought drugs always worked. And famously, I thought the lyrics were, the trucks don't work. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is sad in its own way. Yeah. yeah. It's about um, the decline of the trucking industry. It's a sequel to Oof. Steve Albini's the um what's the truck song David help me out here this is not working No you got it go on <laughs> Yeah go is on Is it mate. called Great American Truck it can't be called Great American Truck <laughs> Why not big black truck Ah oh, it's going to be like, just a big black truck <laughs> The power of independent trucking? Thank you. The power of independent trucking. Got there in the end and it was so worth it. (laughs) 
God damn well, it. Yeah, it's worth it for Very you. Good. I'm the one stuck with Steve Albini truck in my Google history. <laughs> yeah. I searched for big truck song and I did not get that. I got Cold Chambers song, big truck. <laughs> Hell fuck yeah, you did. Let's give it a spin. <laughs> Are we going to call it there on the trucks? Yeah, that's yeah, it. Okay. Call it on the truck. It's a, a great ending. Calling it on the trucks. That brings us to the end of yet another episode of Hottest 100s and Thousands. Thank you very much for listening. We love you. We appreciate you. We hope your days are filled with science and rain and groove jets and drop B guitars and a bunch of other sick shit. Before we get out of here, we are picking our favourites and our least favourites and continuing that ever-continuing story of Carryover Champ and Carryover Chump. My favourite this week was Groove Jet, and I'm making it my new champ. Huge scenes. Whoa. Power move, baby. Huge scenes. Least favourite, why does it always rain on me, but it is not my new chump. Um, yeah, my favourite from this episode is fairly easily Judith. I don't think I'll be replacing everything in its right place, but... There was at least some consideration. I really like Judith. Um, my least favorite, <laughs> laughing at myself here because like I couldn't even be fucked enough. I wrote train. <laughs> I, didn't even, I didn't even write the right fucking band down. Uh, yeah, so Travis Rain. Yeah, train. <laughs> I'm with you there, Adam. My favorite is also Judith by Perfect Circle. I think it was much better than I remembered um, earlier Perfect Circle to be, and it makes me want to go back and explore them. However, my champ also remains everything in its right place. My least favorite is also Travis, but it's not nearly the stinker that Black Jesus is. Yo, but I'm kind of, I feel like I'm more annoyed by it. Or are you just warming to Black Jesus? (laughs) (laughs) He's really coming around on Black Jesus. It's coming back. (laughs) It's coming coming back, back. baby. Look, I'm going to err on the side of safety and not switch out my champ. uh, My chump. Yeah, right. But... Train, you were fucking warm. (laughs) (laughs) My favourite is Judith, but I'll keep everything uh, in its right place as my champ. My least favourite is Travis, but I'll keep responsibility as my chump. The character progression of uh, Nathan Harrison putting a hard rock song as his fave. I know. I know. Also, I'd like to point out that we talked about trucks for quite a while and neither Andrew nor I referenced the Tism song, I Drive a Truck. Or any of the great trucking songs of the Renaissance. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. But you just mentioned both of those things. Now, so nil point. I don't know. I think science would say many point. I'm taking all your eggs. (laughs) Post Champs and Chumps is international waters where anything goes. (laughs) <laughs> where all your dreams come true and science doesn't matter. That's right. We are we are finally free of science right now. Feels good. Fuck gravity and other laws. Oh, my God. <laughs> Thank you again so, so much for listening. We really appreciate all the love and support this season. Don't forget to hit us up on the Discord. The uh, link to that is in the description. And don't forget to hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We are at hottest100s100s across all of those platforms. And I'm sure someone will be able to take your call. We would love to hear from you. But until next time, my dear friends, on behalf of Mr. Nathan Harrison. Bye. Science fact. Let's all give a science fact. There's been enough science facts in this episode. <gasps> Mr. Andrew McDonald. Good night. My science fact is that water often is wet, but sometimes it's like a steam thing. So pretty complex. Look it up. True story. And Mr. Adam Buncher. The, your small intestine is um, long enough to, Where the poop goes. to stretch. 
<laughs> it's long enough to stretch all the way through your poop. Yeah. <laughs> I have one now. Oh, go on then. Uh, the, the equator is long enough to reach around the Earth 1.03 times if you go pole to pole. <laughs> I was going to say, the equator is long enough to reach through the small intestine, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's all the science in the in the house. David might have a science fact. Oh, David, science. Yeah, I've got to do the sign-off, remember? <laughs> I'm the host of the show. <laughs> mm. Give us one. Mm-hmm. My name is David James Young, and I stopped doing science in year 10. (laughs) 